listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. One of the greatest needs in the United States of America at this particular time is for people to speak the truth with compassion and courage. That is one of the greatest needs in the United States of America at this particular time in history, for people who are Christ followers to speak the truth with compassion and courage. Now, last week, I said some things that I need to reiterate again. I do believe that the United States of America is at a tipping point that we have reached and we are now in a we-must-obey-God-rather-than-man moment in the United States of America. And I stand by those comments. I believe it more than ever. And if you believe that, you need to stand by those comments as well. We need to not only speak the truth with compassion and courage, but to live and embody the truth with compassion and with courage. So we've reached a turning point, a tipping point, A time of transition in this nation, we may never go back, but we need to pray and we need to act to try to turn this nation around. Now, whenever we face a situation in our nation that needs to be addressed, we hit pause and we address that issue. We don't apologize for addressing that issue. Imagine bringing the Bible to bear on the issues of the day. One of the reasons why the church is in the weak state that it's in around this nation, I believe, is because we have failed to bring the issues of the day under scrutiny with what the Bible actually teaches. It is very, very important to take the issues that are relevant and pertinent and to look at what the Bible says about those issues, to bring the Bible to bear on those issues Otherwise, things continue to unravel, and that might be one of the primary reasons why the United States of America is in the particular position that we find ourselves in today. Pastors and church leaders have not taken the time and not had the courage, mixed with compassion, to preach the truth, to speak the truth in love. That's what needs to happen. We are called by Almighty God to speak the truth in love. And so when we find ourselves as a nation in a situation where an issue needs to be addressed, we will hit pause and we will address that issue. We will bring the scriptures to bear. It's not about just going on with Bible teaching and going on with the program, going on with a sermon series that might have been pre-planned. It's about observing and discerning the times and then bringing the word of God to bear in light of what's happening. Absolutely important. Well, now we're going to direct our attention back to Luke's gospel as we're in this sermon series, and we're going to look at Luke's gospel in such a way that it actually has relevance and pertinence, practical application in your life and in mine in light of what we're actually facing as a nation. Even though this was written about 2,000 years ago, it is still just as relevant, just as practical, just as pertinent, just as applicable, just as timely, just as life-changing as it was when it was first written. Look with me at this turning point in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. 
in our Lord's word, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. This is a turning point in Luke's gospel. This is happening on the heels of the last supper. The words that are about to come out of my mouth in regard to this passage of scripture occurred on the heels of the last supper. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus quoting from Isaiah 53 verse 12. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, there seems to be an indication that Jesus had a particular place that he would go to in the Mount of Olives. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is warning the 11 who are with him not to fall into temptation. And these are those who were with Jesus for three years, sat under his teaching, observed the miraculous signs and wonders, had meals with him. They were with him for three years. And Jesus warns them and encourages them and challenges them and admonishes them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, if this is what Jesus had to say toward those who were with him for three years, the apostles who would pick up the baton from him and through whom Jesus would plant churches after Jesus' ascension, Jesus is warning them to pray, not to give in to temptation. Then what about you and what about me? It's a wise, good, godly, biblical Jesus thing to pray for yourself that you don't fall into temptation. There are many temptations around us, sexual temptations, financial temptations to use God's money that he's given you to, in, in ways that don't honor God. There are temptations to use our time with all the gadgets and distractions that we have, to use our time in ways that don't really matter in light of eternity. All around us, there are temptations to back down from giving testimony to Jesus Christ when all along we should be standing firm with humble courage and speaking the truth in love, living the truth in love. And so Jesus' words are as pertinent and practical to you and to me today, almost 2,000 years after the fact, as they were to the apostles who sat under his teaching knew what Jesus looked like, knew the sound of his voice. Jesus warned them, pray 
that you do not fall into temptation. Anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, anyone who endeavors to follow Jesus Christ and to follow him closely must understand that temptations abound and it is a good, godly Jesus thing to pray that you don't give in to temptation, to pray for your family, pray for your spouse, that your spouse does not give in to temptation. Don't be so quick to point out when somebody does give in to temptation. The real question might be in many instances, well, did you pray for that person that they did not fall into temptation? It's important to pray for Christians and believers around the United States of America, especially at this particular time, that we speak the truth with compassion and courage. And we don't back down and we don't compromise on what we're going to understand as we look at this passage of Scripture really has to deal with the nature and the character and the reputation of God. Don't think for a minute that if you're following Jesus Christ that the temptations that you face really have to do with you. They don't. That the challenges that you face have to do with you. They don't. There is something much more significant behind the scenes that you might not be able to see, that I might not be able to see. Oftentimes we can't see what really is going on behind the scenes. There's much more going on that has much less to do with you and much more to do with God. So a good, godly, biblical Jesus thing to do is to be a person who prays that you don't fall into temptation, to be a person who prays for your family members and for your friends and for people in the church, to pray for the pastors and the elders and the deacons and all the people of the church, that they don't give in to temptation because you can be like a kid in a candy store. There are so many varieties of temptation out there, so many things that you could choose that if you're not careful... You find yourself choosing before you even realize what you're doing. Pray that you don't give in to temptation. It's a real problem, a reality that you face and that I face and that we need to be aware of and that we need to handle in a spiritual, godly way so that temptation doesn't do a number on us. Look at verse 41. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the prayer of Jesus, so totally consumed with the will of his Father, that it should rub off on us. If we're following that Jesus who was consumed and concerned and totally given over to the will of his Father, that's what it means to be a Christ follower. That everything in your life, everything in my life, everything in the life of a Christ follower is entirely consumed and concerned with the fulfillment of the Father's will, the glory of the Father in every endeavor, every interaction, every word that's spoken, every thought that is embraced. Everything that a Christ follower does truly follows Christ. And to truly follow Christ is to do what Jesus did and what Jesus is modeling right here in his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, 
He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now this is the only one of the gospels where this is recorded and it's recorded this way, that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Some people have tried to belittle that and say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with a physiological thing that was happening in Jesus' body that we now can refer to as hematidrosis. But I think they're wrong. They're wrong to downplay that. It was not a common occurrence to liken sweat as if it were like drops of blood. I think that it's significant that this is Luke. This is Luke the physician who's writing this a bit mesmerized about this phenomenon that now we can look back at hematidrosis, which is a condition that somebody can experience when they're experiencing great turmoil, great anguish, tremendous stress. The blood vessels underneath the skin can actually burst and seep through the pores of the skin. You might say to yourself, well, why would that be happening to Jesus? The Almighty Son of God was never separated from His Father. Never. There was never any distance between the Son and the Father. Never, ever, ever. In fact, when we read in John chapter 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and lived among us for a while. That's talking about the incarnation of the Son of God when the, the Son of God came into the world, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ. And so here is Jesus at this turning point in his ministry. He's been with the apostles for three years, about three years. And now there is a turning point. He goes to that particular place, the Mount of Olives, where he had typically gone. It was a special place that he would go to. And he begins to pour himself out. And the reason why Jesus would be overcome with an anxiety, a stress that would be likened by Luke, the writer of this gospel, to great drops of blood, his sweat appearing as if it was great drops of blood, Jesus is experiencing for the very first time what he knows is on his plate and is arriving very quickly when he would be separated from his father for the very first time. It's something that he had never before experienced. Didn't know, humanly speaking, what it was like to experience separation from the Father. The punishment that brought you peace and me peace as a Christ follower is now being laid on the shoulders of Jesus. It's a transition in his life, in his ministry, and what he is experiencing. For the very first time, he is going to experience separation from his Father. See, that's the way the Bible presents death in, in the Bible. And when we read Genesis, when God warned Adam and Eve, don't eat this fruit, because when you do, you will die. Adam lived for 900-some years. But that very day, they were kicked out of the garden. Separation, spiritual death. And so when the weight of sin, when the guilt of sin was going to be put on Jesus' shoulders, when he was hanging on that cross for the very first time, he was experiencing separation from his father. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That's why he cried that out. For the very first time, he was experiencing 
what you would experience, what I would experience, what everyone will experience when they reject the sacrifice that God the Father provided through Jesus Christ, his Son. Separation from God, only it is eternal separation. It is called the second death in the book of Revelation. The second death is to go into an eternity separated from Almighty God and to never have the opportunity to be brought to life, to be born again. And so Jesus is in that place, pouring himself out, anticipating something that was almost enough right there to kill him. The very thought that what was on the horizon was that he would be separated from his father because of your sin and because of mine, because of the sin of the world. And his sweat became like great drops of blood. Something for us to heed and to take to heart in the same way that Jesus, the one we say we follow, was nearly overcome at the very thought of being separated from his father. So too a Christ follower should be concerned by doing anything that would jeopardize that abiding, intimate, close walk with Jesus. Something to comprehend and to keep always at the forefront of our minds when we're in that candy shop of sin. And we've begun to make a selection that we should never make. We shouldn't even be in that store in the first place, but oftentimes we go there. To remember that sin has its consequences. First and foremost, it was your sin and mine that sent Jesus to the cross. And it was Jesus' abiding, passionate love for his Father that caused him to, with obedience, go to the cross even though it caused him tremendous anguish, the very thought of being separated from his father. Now, did you notice what's also said here? Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Whenever we see angels appear, it's a significant time, significant opportunity. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So you're never alone when you're facing a temptation. You're never alone when you're facing a struggle or a difficulty if you've really given your life to Jesus Christ. If you are really a Christ follower, you need to understand, look at it in your own time, Hebrews chapter one, angels are ministering spirits sent by almighty God to help to serve those who have inherited salvation. And we see that God the Father has sent an angel to encourage Jesus at his deep, dark moment, which is going to get deeper and darker because by the time we're done with this section of Scripture, all of the remaining apostles have left Jesus. And not only that, those who have been with him for three years and sat under his teaching really don't get it. And yet that is the plan of God, the immortal to use the mortal. Somehow, 
God is able to use you as a mortal. He's able to use me as a mortal. The immortal is somehow able to accomplish his plan and his purpose, his agenda, even though it might appear that we are the flies in the ointment, that we mess it up, that we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We forget the truth about God, the truths about who we are in him, and then we choose to sin and to give in to temptation. And yet, the plan and the purpose and the glory of God is untainted. It moves forward somehow. God is able to take your wrongs and still come out right. Somehow God is able to take things that you do, choices that you do, choices that I've made, sin. And he's able to overcome them so that his glory remains untainted. His agenda remains steadfast and immovable. Somehow God Almighty is able to do that. Verse 45, when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Again, we see their weakness. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, temptation on the heart of Jesus, on the mind of Jesus, while he is about to be tempted again. While he is being tempted again. Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it be, but nevertheless, not my will. Let your will be done. In the midst of Jesus facing what he was facing, he was concerned about those he had invested in, those he'd poured himself into. And in the same way, he is concerned about you. He cares about you. He's concerned about you. He knows all the choices that are at your disposal and at my disposal on any given day. And Jesus is urging the apostles and he would be urging us today, do not give in to temptation. Pray that you do not give in to temptation. And today in the United States of America, there are more choices in the candy shop of sin than there have perhaps ever been in the history of this nation. And God knows about it. He knew about it. And his word to you and his word to me would be the same. Pray, pray, pray that you don't give in to temptation. Jesus knows a thing or two about temptation and he knows a thing or two about how to overcome temptation. So we do well to heed the words of Jesus. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Here again, we see Jesus using his favorite phrase found in the book of Daniel, the son of man in reference to himself. So Jesus is either blaspheming by doing that or he once again is helping the apostles and helping us today understand that he identified himself as the one spoken of prophetically in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Jesus is the son of man. The same son of man who is spoken of in the book of Daniel as returning on the clouds. We see that in the book of Revelation. Jesus, the son of man, returning on the clouds 
Jesus intentionally helping them connect the dots, helping us connect the dots. He says, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now we'll get to the sword issue in a little bit more detail next week. I think it's fascinating and it's interesting that Jesus even allowed them to carry swords in the first place. I mean, the sword shows up earlier in this passage and you would think that Jesus would say, don't bring that sword where we're going but apparently they bring it. Jesus is aware of it, and here the sword raises its head. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke is the physician records the account here of where the ear that was cut off by one of the apostles was healed by Jesus. And you would think that that would be enough for the rest of the crowd there to see this miraculous sign to believe that this is not a mere mortal you're dealing with here in Jesus. But their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened. And you need to remember that as you're praying for people in your family who are in your family and your friends, that there is more to spiritual warfare than meets the eye. People's eyes can be blinded, their hearts can be hardened, and they might not be able to see the truth that is staring them right in the eyes. Now, the interesting thing about this is that we find out in John's gospel, in John chapter 18, we find out which one of the dense apostles was the one who drew his sword and cut off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. John tells us in John chapter 18, verse 10, then Simon Peter, Simon's the one, Peter's the one. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. There seems to be nothing allegorical about this account whatsoever. The writers of scripture mean what they say, say what they mean. They want us to understand that these were real events with real people. They actually occurred. There's tremendous detail given here. And we understand that it's Peter who draws his sword and cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant. And it's the great physician himself, Jesus, who reaches out his hand and provides the healing for that ear. Like I said, we'll get into the sword issue a little bit more down the road. But what I do want to focus on right here are the first four verses of this section, verses 31 through 34. Let's look. Simon, Simon, Jesus says at this turning point, behold, Satan demanded to have you. This is the imagery of him asking, of him begging like a spoiled child, demanding. The pronoun that's used in the first two instances is a plural. Thereafter, it's singular. So here's what's being said. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you that he might sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, individual. This is addressed to Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Simon, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
Now, this is not the first instance uh, by far that Satan appears in the scriptures, and it's not the first instance that helps us gain some understanding as to his tactics and the way he operates. Look with me at the book of Job, in Job chapter one, which is a book that I commend to you to read if you are a person who's committed to glorifying God. If your objective in life is to glorify God, then the book of Job is something you should pay attention to because the book of Job asks and answers the question, why do people who want to glorify God suffer? Why do people who are quote-unquote righteous, defining righteous as wanting to glorify God, why do good people, quote-unquote, nobody's good except God himself, we know that, but there is such a thing as being a relatively good person, somebody who wants to glorify God and wants to honor him. And the book of Job asks and answers this question, why do people who want to glorify God go through so much difficulty and so much hardship? And why is it in the United States of America that we have allowed ourselves to become so weak when it comes to understanding persecution? Listen, the persecution that we are facing now as a church, which is Unusual for us is nothing compared to what others have been facing for many years around the world. And we're quaking and shaking in our boots. In a very real sense, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because biblically, when we read about the persecution that comes on the world before Jesus returns, it's much more significant, much more painful than what we've begun to experience in the United States of America. And so if it is your ambition to glorify God, you must understand that you will be an object of attack. You will get the attention of God and you will get the attention as a byproduct of Satan. Look with me at Job chapter one, verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the Elohim, this is a word that's used, it's a plural word that's used, it's used in reference to God because there's a plurality in the Trinity. It's used of angels and it's also used of mere mortals. Elohim, it means mighty ones. And here it's translated as sons of God. Now there was a day when the sons of God, most likely, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, notice who is raising the question. The devil never initiates anything in your life. It's always God making the first move and the enemy who is adept at stealing, killing, and destroying. John chapter 10 says that. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He responds to what God is doing. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? This is humanly speaking, a person who's not without sin, but a person whose objective is to glorify God who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? In other words, I can't get to him. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. If you're to read the rest of chapter one, you understand that 
the Lord brought calamity on Job's household. There was death and financial loss, unprecedented, and Job responds, glorifying God. And in Job chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God, the Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes, the rubble of all that he used to have when God had blessed him. Don't you dare ever think that spiritual warfare and opposition and persecution is really about you. There is more to warfare than meets the eye. In the book of Job, we get a behind-the-scenes look at what the devil is really after. He is after his objective is to try to diminish the glory of God, to try to get people like you and me, mere mortals, to curse the immortal. And in so doing, to cause you to lose your witness, to lose your credibility, but it's more than that, to try to detract from the unchanging, undiminishable glory and honor of Almighty God. Persecution is not about you. There is more to warfare than meets the eye. There are things happening behind the scenes when you are standing for what is true, when you're standing for what's right, when you're standing on God's side for the nature and the character of God. Of course, you're going to be in satanic crosshairs. Of course, you're going to be an object that repulses the enemy because your endeavor honors God. And the enemy is opposed to anything and everything that honors God. The more you want to honor God, the more you're going to be opposed. And if you don't find yourself experiencing persecution, you know where I'm going with this. This false, counterfeit, diabolical, heretical prosperity gospel that has people believing that they're insulated and that no hardship can come their way because they're the head and not the tails. It's not biblical. What's biblical is that if you want to stand for righteousness, if you want to be a person whose objective is to be blameless as a Christ follower, to do what is right and to honor God, if godly character is your objective, you will be persecuted. You will be hated. Jesus said, keep in mind that if the world hates you, it hated me first. 
The Bible teaches very clearly that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And now we have things happening at a national level that cause us to back off, back off. That's how weak we've become. A little bit of pressure from mere mortals who have no authority or power to do anything to you unless God grants it are causing us to back off on the issues of sex and sexuality and the nature and the character of God? If this is how we back off over something so insignificant, what will we do when the real persecution comes in the United States of America? And I believe it is coming. The truth of the matter is, you've got to get over it. I've got to get over it. We have to rediscover the truth in the Bible. If you want to live for Jesus Christ, part of what comes with that territory is the persecution of God. God will be persecuted. He will be bullied. He will be attacked. And the primary way that that happens in this world is by attacking you to try to get you to stop living for Jesus Christ, to try to get you to compromise on what the Bible teaches and whatever the Bible might teach, to get you to back off so that you walk away from the Lord or that other people, because of what you have done that didn't glorify the Lord, causes them to walk away from the Lord. And Peter was facing such an instance Satan, Satan, listen, Jesus believed in a literal Satan, a real person who could wreak real havoc. How do we know that? Because Jesus interceded for Peter. He knew that Satan was a real person, and you better believe it too. Don't let yourself believe this lie that Satan's some kind of a fairy tale. If you've got a problem with the reality of Satan, you've got a problem with the teachings of Jesus. Satan is a real, formidable foe, and he seeks to divert you and to pervert your pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. And he'll do it any and every opportunity he can, whether it's through the redefinition of family, or it's the redefinition of sex and sexuality, or it's through things that you say out of your mouth that you shouldn't say, whether it's gossip or slander or the poor use of time, or the poor use of money. Remember, that candy store is a big candy store. There are many ways to be tempted from making your ambition and staying the course on your ambition of giving glory to God and living for him. Jesus prayed for the apostles that they would not fall into temptation. Jesus prayed for Peter, but I've prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter, who always gets this bad rap, we are so much like Peter. And I am so thankful that God used Peter so powerfully because I can identify with Peter. He's told Satan himself wants to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You would think that this would sink in. That doesn't sound too good. When I've turned back, what, and what does Peter say? Verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus says, prison and death? You have such a lofty understanding of yourself, Peter. 
Let's talk about simply acknowledging that you know me. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. The devil is known very clearly. This is Satan in verse 31, known as the adversary. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, written by the apostle Peter, interestingly enough. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember in the book of Job, where have you come from? To and fro, roaming the whole earth, not twiddling his thumbs, looking for someone to devour. And in particular, someone who wants to stand for God. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your flesh. Is that what it says? Don't you love the way the Lord had Peter write this? Someone who was willing to make good on his promise. Lord, I'm willing to go to prison with you. I'm willing to go to death with you. And when the crowd comes with Judas to take Jesus away, it's Peter who tries to make good on that promise. I believe he tried. With all that was in him, pulled out that sword, struck Malchus on his right ear, and off it comes, tried to make good with his misunderstanding and the use of that sword. Tried to make good in his flesh, and here he is writing, resist him, resist the enemy, not in the flesh. I tried and I couldn't. But standing firm in the faith. That might be your problem. You've been trying to fight an unseen battle with the things that you can see in the flesh. It doesn't work that way. There is more to warfare than meets the eye. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the grace of God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, God himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We have a very, very real adversary whose objective is to attack the glory of God if he can, to diminish the agenda of God if he can, to thwart you from living a life that glorifies God, and you will suffer if your endeavor is to glorify God. You will suffer. You will face the possibility of temptation. And what Jesus says to Peter, should be encouraging to every single one of us. Jesus saw it before it happened. Jesus prayed for Peter before the trial happened. And somehow, see, this is true in your life too. I know it's true in mine. You can drop the ball when it's handed to you. And God somehow picks it up and keeps running. One of the things we do in the body of Christ is we run away from our failures. We're afraid of admitting our failures. 
and yet one of the greatest gifts that Almighty God has given every Christ follower is the gift of sharing your failures. My mother got divorced after 33 years of marriage. You know anybody who's gotten divorced? You know anybody who feels like they're a failure because they've gotten divorced? You know anybody who's got a skeleton in their closet that they're afraid of sharing or talking about? God's not afraid of any skeleton in any closet. He knows what it is anyway. I said to my mom one time, I said, Mom, you need to write a book on marriage. And she said, me, she laughed. How could I write a book on marriage? I got divorced. I said, that's exactly why you can write a book on marriage. See, what happens through our failures is we learn how to help other people succeed. It's God Almighty who has Peter, the one who denied the Lord three times, the one who was so strong in his natural man, so determined in his flesh to stand for Jesus, but couldn't. It's him that the Lord chooses. It is Peter that the Lord chooses to write first Peter, that epistle, where Peter is now admonishing us to stand firm in the faith, not the flesh. Your past is one of the greatest object lessons, teachable things that God Almighty has allowed in your life. The enemy tries to use it against you, but God wants to use it for his glory. Yes, we've got an adversary. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody who's trying to do their best and follow God to try to derail them, to try to detract from the glory and the reputation and the mission of God. But you need to understand that there's somebody else at work. He was at work in the life of Peter and he's at work in your life too. First John chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The objective of a Christian is to live a life that glorifies God. You can't glorify God if you tolerate sin. So John is writing and saying, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. And that's what Jesus was doing for Peter being his advocate, praying and interceding for him. And here we have it, a great passage of scripture to commit to memory. First John chapter two, verse one, we have an advocate. You remember that. Don't be so adversary focused that you forget that we have an advocate. The advocate overcomes the adversary every single time. God Almighty gives us an advocate because he knows, God Almighty knows that if your endeavor, and it is if you're a Christ follower, is to glorify God, you will get the attention of God, you will get the attention of Satan, you will be in the crosshairs, and it is not about you. It is about the glory of Almighty God. It is about the agenda of Almighty God. It always was, it always will be. There is more to warfare than meets the eye. There's more to the temptations that you're facing or the temptations you may face than meets the eye. Many of us have done things, I have done things in our past where now we know better. 
And if we knew then what we know now, we would have made different choices. Well, now that you know, make different choices and help other people make different choices. Help people understand there is more to warfare than meets the eye. The glory of God, the mission of God, the reputation of God, the agenda of God is what is at stake. And God uses mere mortals like you, mere mortals like me. I know it's counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? And yet somehow that is the partnership that God decided to birth, that he would use mere mortals. The immortal would use mere mortals to glorify his name. Peter's shortcomings, even in this little passage here, not understanding, not listening to Jesus when Jesus was clearly speaking to him. We've done that and we do that all the time. Peter overestimating himself. In overestimating himself, he underestimated how weak his flesh was. And you can do the same thing in your life I've done that same thing in my life. Be careful that you don't have a higher view of yourself than what is really true. Be careful that you don't overestimate your flesh and think that you are capable, like Peter, to go to prison for Jesus, to follow Jesus to death because of your dogged determination. Even our best efforts in the flesh to stand for Jesus are not enough to overcome a diabolical assault. That's why Peter says, resist him, resist the adversary, standing firm, not in the flesh, but standing firm in the faith. That's how we overcome him. And we don't overcome him standing firm in the faith just by ourselves, but with the power of the advocate interceding and speaking to the Father on our behalf. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God is committed to his own glory and the advancement of his own agenda. He's given you and me as followers of Jesus Christ everything we need to follow Jesus Christ. Everything we need to glorify God. Everything we need to be used by God for his agenda and his purposes. And even when we drop the ball, even when we do what Peter did and we fail in instances and in moments, God shows himself still to be sovereign. He shows himself still to be in control. Somehow his glory continues. Somehow his agenda continues. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that and when I contemplate that, it motivates me to live for that God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.